Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, there's a lot to talk about this week after the semi-historic by-elections last week in Copeland and Stoke. Just what do they mean for Westminster politics in the coming years? We'll be discussing that on this week's show, but also what now for the Labour Party? Is UKIP finished as a political force? And we'll also be trying to understand a bit more from our latest exclusive polling on what people want from a Prime Minister. And then maybe should Labour decide they do want a new leader, what might they be looking out for? So I'm joined by regular contributors to uh, Polling Matters, Adam Drummond of Opinion and Matt Sig of Number Cruncher Politics. Gents, welcome. Thank you. Matt. Looking back to the last uh, Thursday in Copeland and Stoke, obviously there's been a lot written and said about it already. Um, What were your key takeaways? So in order to put these two by-election results into uh, some sort of perspective, it's it's helpful to look, I think, at what historically we might expect to happen in these midterm by-elections. And the golden rule, as it were, in by-elections is that you would expect the governing party to drop back, and the best-placed non-governing party, in both of these cases, Labour held seats, so that would be Labour, to pick up the gains. Now, the reasons for that, obviously, turnout drops in by-elections. Uh, it seems to drop more normally among supporters, uh, or people who voted for the governing party last time. That would include a lot of swing voters. And people want to give the government a kick as well. Exactly. Often. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not um, electing government, you're electing an MP, and people can use that as an opportunity to protest um, about whatever they feel and give the government a bloody nose. What seems to have happened here is that people have actually turned around and given the opposition a bloody nose. Now, normally, uh, at this in these um, in, a, in, a, in a relatively close seat midterm, on average, an opposition would get a swing of about ten or twelve percent in its favour. So, in 2012, um, under Ed Miliband, when Labour got a swing. Um, of, uh, I think, a little under 13% to take um, Corby after Louise Mensch resigned, um, that is pretty much par for the course. Um, what's happened, if an, if an opposition party got a swing of 7% towards it, you would say that's a, an opposition party that's heading for defeat. But in this case, in Copeland, there was a, a swing of 7% in the wrong direction, uh, which really looks... Um, bad. Now obviously there may have been um, local differences, local factors perhaps but in the same time in Stoke there was a swing in the wrong direction as well so on this basis it it looks very serious indeed and it really does, there's nothing in here to contradict what we've been seeing all along from opinion polling that um, the situation for Labour is quite serious. So but thinking historically I mean you mentioned obviously that typically the opposition would expect to see a swing towards it in these sorts of um, by-elections. Just how bad is it, though, for Labour historically? I mean, when was it, you know, we talked about, I think it was 1983, the last time... 1982. 1982, sorry, the last time the uh, government took a, a seat from the opposition. I mean, is this, are we talking about genuinely, I guess we are, historic circumstances here? Yes, we are. And, uh, I mean, because of, for the reasons, uh, as discussed, usually seeing a swing from the government to an opposition. It's incredibly rare for a governing party to pick up a seat in a by-election from the opposition. The last time that happened, as you say, was Mitchum and Morden in 1982. It happened in total maybe a dozen times in the whole of the last century. And crucially, in each of those cases, there was some sort of special circumstance. So in in Mitchum and Morden, you had a, a floor crosser to the SDP Uh, resigning to recontest. Um, In other cases, you had changes in the set of parties that were competing, so we ended up with a split or an unsplit 
vote that made the difference. Um, in other case, in one case, Tony Benn being disqualified by an election court, or in many cases, a very, very small majority, far smaller than what you saw in Copeland, and in most cases, more than one of the above. So if you want to compare on a, a genuine apples-to-apples basis, there really hasn't been anything like it since the 19th century. You have to go back to Worcester in 1978 to find the last thing that was directly comparable to Copeland. So it is a very bad thing And how, I mean, and I want to bring Adam in soon, but Matt, how... Um bad could this get then for Labour at a future general election? I mean, all the caveats we would normally expect are there. It's, you know, in theory in 2020, we don't know who the Labour leader is going to be and so on. But just on this trend itself, how bad could that get? Well, it's very interesting uh, to analyse from this point because normally what you'd expect uh, by this point would be that an opposition would have had a swing towards it and indeed be ahead at this point. Because there's been a swing in the opposite direction to what we'd expect... The question really is, do we expect uh, a mean reversion back towards or something closer to the, the result of the last election, or do we think it goes sideways at the same sort of level, or perhaps does the trend even continue, which in directional terms would be similar to what we've normally seen with, with Labour oppositions. Um, and at this stage, it's really hard to tell, even if we had certainty over things like um, the Labour leadership, which I know we're going to come on to in a moment mm. but um uh, it is really quite difficult to tell this but i think we need to see more local election results in particular before and i suppose there is a, a separate dynamic which is of course this comes in the aftermath of the the brexit vote and uh, as we know with the scottish referendum that obviously had a seismic impact on what came after and um people talked about ukip maybe being the beneficiaries of the brexit vote uh, or, or a Remain vote, if that was to be the case, but maybe the Conservatives are going to be the beneficiaries of a, of, of a Brexit vote. I mean, Adam, I want to bring you, bring you in and get some of your perspectives on some of that, but also, I mean, there is this talk that John Curtis has written on, uh, I think in the, new, in the Guardian, sorry, uh, but also in the New Statesman historically, that Labour ought to be sort of cha- uh, looking to champion the Remain cause or, or target Remain voters. Uh, it's, being too, uh, it's been too concerned about Leave voters. I mean, what, what do you make of some of that? Um, just on the by-elections, first of all, I think um, one of the things that's interesting is how the result in Stoke-on-Trent has really sort of masked Labour's weakness there as well because, OK, they, they narrowly won what should have been quite a safe seat uh, which they've held for you know, time immemorial. If you look at the combined UKIP and Conservative percentage, it's basically 50%. So the, and the way that Labour kind of scraped through there um, was purely down to the fact that their opposition was divided almost you know, completely down the middle between two opposing parties who, between them, dwarf Labour's vote share, as well as the fact that we had you know, Paul Nuttall spending most of the campaign uh, denying that he you know, was playing on the pitch when Hillsborough happened or something like that. Um, <laughs> so it's, so Labour's collapse is, is not just in, in Copeland, where also there were quite strong local factors like Corp, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's long opposition to the main employer in that uh, constituency, um, the fact that... Um, the MP there was uh, leaving to go and do a job in that industry and was quite clearly a vocal critic of the party leadership. Um, but, yeah, the situation in Stoke where, um, which was... I remember um, seeing commentary beforehand saying this is a, this is a really leave-heavy uh, uh, constituency and, uh, you know, I think it was something like 70% voting to leave, so therefore Labour and uh, formerly sort of remain 
supporting party would really struggle there. But if you look at any of Labour's leaflets there, they were really trying to emphasise that they were supporting Brexit and they were supporting Leave. And so to the extent that that was a factor, that should in theory have been quite neutralised. And still they only managed to win because they scraped through the middle on the backs of uh, divided opposition. It is interesting, just before we go on to John Curtis's point, that if you look at the two Labour vote shares, as, as you rightly allude to, 37.1% in Stoke, 37.3% in Copeland, so basically 37 in both. I mean, I think Stoke was similar uh, at the last election, of course. Um, you know, the UKIP and the Conservatives getting similar vote shares there too. Mm. So, I mean, maybe... Uh, I don't know if the, I don't know if the Conservatives could ever take Stoke. That just feels very unlikely. But um, you know, in theory, if, if that UKIP vote was to go away, um, there is scope for someone to grow. I mean, what do you make of this John Curtis point, though? So he he, he basically says that um, Labour are neglecting their Remain vote and makes the not unreasonable point, I suppose, that if uh, if you yeah, everyone's obsessing over about one in three Labour voters voting Leave, but if two in three voted Remain, then they're they're obviously <laughs> they're, they're where you need to focus your attention, are they? So I think the the main point with uh, whether or not Labour targets remain as or leavers is where how the, how the sort of you know the, the maximum upside and downside for Labour has really been recalibrated in the last year or two, and it's gone from being okay how do they choose a leader or, or embark on a strategy which is going to bring them victory or enable them to beat the Conservatives, whereas now it's really about choosing a strategy which will. Um, prevent them from completely imploding. So the, the the best case scenario for Labour at the moment seems to be a repeat of the 2015 general election where, of course, they lost by seven points and uh, lost seats and, and the Conservatives won a majority. Whereas the worst case scenario is, you know, going down to sub-200 MPs and, and or even worse and losing swathes of seats across um, uh, England outside of London. So whether or not... Um, I think whether they target Remain or Leave voters, um, the difficulty for Labour basically is, is that in order to, at a bare minimum, hold on to that sort of vote that they had um, in 2015, when, of course, like I said, they lost quite badly, um, they need to avoid losing any of that, which means um, that they um, can't really afford to annoy either side, but no matter what they do is going to annoy either side. Um, this is a conundrum for Labour, really, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I made this point a week or so ago. After the Scottish referendum, they, they tried to appeal to everybody. Mm. And I'm not necessarily criticising that strategy. It's a logical thing to do. Um, but in the end, the Conservatives became the kind of unionist party, unashamedly so. Mm. The SNP, of course, were the party of yes, that makes complete sense. And Labour kind of left floundering, appealing to nobody. And I suppose there is this risk after Brexit that their position, understandably, is that well, we can't afford to be too niche because we're trying to be a national party of government. You end up nothing. And and the market there is is... In theory, at least, if you if you work on a sort of Ed Miliband type, you know, adding together vote shares of different issues to try and cobble together a majority, the market there is kind of open for a Remain party because you basically have the Conservatives who are, you know, now almost fully rebranded as the pro-Leave party on about sort of 40-something percent of the vote. You've got UKIP who, you know, that's their raison d'etre. They are, you know, the Leave party. So between the two of those, uh, they that's, you know, that's the 52% who voted to Leave completely taken care of, if that's their primary mm-hmm. issue. And then the remaining 48%, well, if Brexit was their main sort of driver of how they vote, what are they going to do? They, there's the Lib Dems who are very, very sort of, you know, regionally based and quite niche and not a realistic option in most cases, or there's a sort of half-heartedly trying to avoid the worst Brexit possible um, supporting Labour candidate. So, again, Labour's, Labour's position is kind of, it's lose-lose, because they either try to, um, you know, 
appeal to Leave voters, in which case there's a huge cultural issue there because as, uh, cultural as much as economic factors drove the Brexit vote and uh, you know, feelings of um, opposition to you know, cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitanism and, and metropolitan liberal elites and all of that. Um, if a Labour Party is going to try and become really sort of pro-Leave and capitalise on that uh, feeling then Jeremy Corbyn is possibly the wrong man to do it. Um, ironically, given his, given the fact that he voted against every European treaty and probably voted uh, leave in the referendum yeah. itself. Um, so as far as doubling down on Remain voters goes, um, the again, it's, the, the only upside to that really is that it will possibly enable them to hold on to more of their 2015 vote than might otherwise be the case. But again, if we're talking about what are the best case and worst case scenarios for Labour at the moment, that may be. I the suppose. Best case. I suppose the way I look at this is okay. Maybe this is a bit simplistic, but who who is the big group of people that you can imagine someone trying to take the votes of? And I would have thought Tory Remainers hmm. would have been a, a block to look at because essentially. They lost the argument, if you like, but also they're a bit politically homeless, arguably. Mm. Arguably, we don't know. I mean, it seems at the moment that they're sticking with uh, Theresa May. Uh, and But also, just mechanically, it's a big group of people. I mm. mean, there is this kind of sense of let's pocket Greens and Lib Dems here, there and everywhere. But actually, there's quite a lot of Conservatives. It's hard to do the maths with Labour in terms of genuinely coming back. It doesn't involve Conservative votes. I mean, Matt, I want to get your points on, on some of that. But also, this idea... Um, we haven't talked about UKIP too much, and we won't do too much today, but some people have sort of suggested that UKIP are finished, and yet we look at these voting intention polls, and even though the Tories are the party of, uh, of leave, as Adam says, UKIP are still in double digits, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's... It's, it's, it's way too soon to start um, calling time on UKIP. I mean, there's, there is certainly a market for what they're selling. I mean, it goes back to, to um, the piece we were talking about earlier from uh, George Eden, which was making pretty much that point. Uh, I think there is always a market for a none-of-the-above party, and at the moment the none-of-the-above market is split between split along Remain-Leave lines, so you have uh, the Lib Dems and UKIP. Now, obviously, it is lazy to assume that everything splits along those lines. I mean, there's a limit to how important that is, but it still matters to people, and to some people it matters a lot. So um, I I don't think, uh, certainly in terms of vote share, that UKIP is going away anytime soon. In, in terms of the... Um, where Labour has, has or might look for votes and where it's lost votes. I mean, I think I agree with pretty much everything Adam said. And if if you look back, not just at, um, at, at the present vote and not just in terms of uh, Brexit or anything uh, in policy terms, if you look at the... Since 2005, whether you look on a recall vote basis or on a an aggregate level basis, the people and the, the places where uh, the people have been lost to Labour look very much like the Leave voters, or you, you can talk about it in terms of metropolitan versus provincial, graduate versus non-graduate, so on and so on. And the thing is, obviously, with due regard to what we discussed about Labour being in damage limitation mode as far as the next election goes... If it ever does want to govern again, then it needs to think about the sort of coalition that it would want to uh, build. And if it goes too far down the sort of um, being a, in, in the same, um, among the, the sort of metropolitan remain line to the exclusion of the, um, 
just to emphasise, to, to the exclusion of some of the more uh, traditional voters that they've lost, then that's just going to make it even harder to, to get mm. them back. So I think the... I certainly take the point about the majority of their current support being remain and not wanting to lose them, but I do think that you know if they if they ever actually want to govern again, they do have to think about um, what their future coalition might look like, and I think it is going to be is going to have to be a relatively broad church, not just on the left right scale, but on the open closed scale as it has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, to, having this discussion doesn't make it doesn't hasn't left me thinking it's any easier than when we started it. I must, it, I, I it, must it, it, it's certainly not easy, but I think in order to, to find a solution first, you have to understand the problem. Mm. Let's move on. Um, so I want to talk a bit about what might happen in the future uh, with Labour, but also some uh, polling that um, we, we've done this week. Um, the bridge to that, I suppose, is, is I just want to plug shamelessly an article that I wrote on political betting earlier this week. Adam won't mind because it features opinion uh, polling. Um, but we looked at this question around to what extent Jeremy Corbyn is the problem that Labour face. Now, his supporters will will say, perhaps understandably, that you know, Labour's problems are bigger than him. I think that most people would agree with that. I think part of what we've been discussing today has, has demonstrated that it's a really hard demographic challenge and how you sort of square this leave and remain circle as one example. We haven't talked about things like immigration and culture and all the rest of it. But one of the things that we did... Um, this week as we looked at whether or not um, Jeremy Corbyn was the right or wrong person to lead Labour into a general election. We also compared him to some other leaders. And part of um, what we wanted to do with that survey was to look at not just whether that was, you know, what voters thought, and 67% of voters, this is specifically voters, that uh, it should be reiterated, not just the general public, thought Corbyn was the wrong person to lead Labour into a general election. Only 9% didn't know which uh, is probably the most worrying finding, uh, in contrast, for example, with 30% that didn't know if Paul Nuttall was the right person to lead UKIP into a general election. Perhaps that will have changed since. Um, so not only were the ratings very bad for Corbyn, but we were also able to cut those numbers by uh, people that were definitely going to vote Labour next time and people that would consider voting Labour. And what we found was that people that would definitely vote Labour, uh, the sample size being 381, so not terrible, um, 57% thought he was the right person, 34% thought he was the wrong person. But among those that would consider voting Labour, which I should stress doesn't mean that they necessarily um, are committed to doing so in voting intention polls at the moment, they might be saying that they would vote Lib Dem or Conservative or something else, but that they would just consider Labour as well. Um, 67% thought he was the wrong person, so basically bang in line with what voters think overall. So I think it's hard to make the argument that somehow... Um, Jeremy Corbyn is unimportant in this and isn't a factor in uh, Labour's uh, problems at the moment, though I would certainly accept that it is bigger than him and simply changing a leader uh, alone wouldn't um, make the overwhelming difference. I mean, Adam, anything you want to sort of comment on there before we yeah, I, move on? So I think just going back to this point that um, in, in terms of you know, the, the boundaries of what's the best and worst case scenario for Labour, one of the things that always jumps out at me about any Jeremy Corbyn polling that we do is how similar in, in uh, a lot of the time, how similar it is to equivalent polling that we did about Ed Miliband. And one of the gem, one of the themes that came across quite a lot was that you would see Conservative voters lockstep in behind um, at the time David Cameron, you know, something like 90% saying he was doing a good job as Prime Minister and, and uh, you know, really strong approval ratings among people who are going to vote for that party for that leader. Uh, whereas Ed Miliband would get kind of among Labour voters a lot more, uh, you know, sort of tepid uh, 
responses. Um, so something around like you know fifty five percent or so would say they approved of the job that he was doing, but they would still vote Labour, which obviously when the election came uh, may have been a bit of a harbinger. Um, so what's interesting here is that um, again among current Labour voters, only fifty three percent say that Jeremy Corbyn is the right person to um, lead Labour into the next election. So that's excluding people who have already said who have already decided to, to give up on Labour or to uh, tick don't know because they aren't fans of the direction the party is taking or the current leader. That's among people who still tick the box for Labour and said that they're going to vote for it, but they don't think that Jeremy Corbyn's the right person to lead them into the election. So the what that suggests is that um, even among the quite, yeah, shall we say, suboptimal figures that uh, Labour are getting in voting agenda polls, that figure could potentially still be quite soft, mm. and we may find that on election day. I mean, let's move on. Let's uh, let's play a game where we uh, assume that Jeremy Corbyn might not lead Labour into the 2020 election for whatever reason. Maybe he's challenged, maybe he stands down, who knows. Um, I want to sort of explore a bit about what type of leader Labour would want to uh, choose. And there's two polls that I want to look at um, to do that. One is a YouGov survey um, which took place between the 13th and 21st of February, which asked... Um, Three, more than 3,000 uh, people, uh, nationally representative as usual, whether they had heard of um, a host of Labour politicians. Uh, I think there's about 20-odd there. Um, but it, and, if, and among those that they'd heard of, so you didn't get asked this unless you'd heard of them, um, whether people liked them or not. And there was a sort of five-point scale, I think it was. And, um, and they created a sort of net likability score, which I think we've explored on this podcast before, where you basically subtract the people that say they dislike someone from the number that say they like them, and you create a sort of positive or negative score. It gives you a, a shorthand way of describing how, po- uh, how sort of popular somebody might be. So I just want to sort of whiz through some of the key findings here, and then I'll get sort of both of your thoughts on, I guess, the usefulness of this sort of poll, but also um, what it says. And then later on, we'll talk about um, the latest Polling Matters Opinion Survey, which looks at um, some of the characteristics that would make a good Prime Minister and what we can learn from that. So just purely on the have you heard of uh, these different Labour politicians, I guess the best way to do this is to look at pe- um, look at who more than half of people have heard of. So 94% have heard of Jeremy Corbyn, 93% Ed Miliband, 74% Sadiq Khan, 60% Hilary Benn, 59% Yvette Cooper, 54% Andy Burnham. So I guess a lot of those people are people that are either the Labour leader, have been Labour leader, Sadiq Khan, of course, Mayor of London, or people that have been in and around the news, maybe running for the Labour leadership, or Hilary Benn obviously had that high-profile sacking. So... I mean, these are the people that are most in the public eye. In contrast, for the sort of politicos among among you listening in, only uh, 19% have heard of Keir Starmer, for example. Uh, 4% have heard of Lisa Nandy. I'm just picking some at random here. Um, only 28% think they've heard of John McDonnell. So whatever you think uh, sort of uh, knowledge of politicians is, it's probably a bit lower. And even with um, Labour voters themselves, as you might expect, Labour voters more likely to have heard of a lot of these Labour politicians than the public overall, but still not, you know, a great deal. Only half of Labour voters, for example, say they've heard of Chukra Munna. So, you know, even and, and you'd have thought that, you know, Labour voters would have heard of that person. Well, only 96% of 2015 Labour voters have heard of uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and only 95% <laughs> of Ed Miliband. So you can get 3 or 4% of a poll to say anything, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, I, I want to go on to some of the numbers around likability, but, um, you know, Matt, how, how useful do you think this sort of polling is? I mean, some people would just say, well, look, it's just name recognition. 
I think that is the risk, and, and certainly if, if you had to choose between someone who was the ideal candidate but no one had heard of and someone who everyone had heard of. And um, I mean, I think there was actually some analysis uh, along with this that looked at, um, looked at recognition as well. Um, I mean, I think there's, it's, it's got, what it ultimately comes down to in all of this is a compromise between what the Labour membership in whatever form it is at the time um, can accept and because they're going to be people choosing the leader, aren't mm. they? Exactly, and so a compromise between that and um, well, ultimately, what a, a swing voter in Nuneaton would go for. Now, at the moment, the gap between the two looks as though it's too wide to be bridged. So the question is, how um, far towards the um, uh, on I, that I, scale? I, I suppose, I, yeah, yeah for how, how far in that direction it could um, could be stretched. I mean, if, if we're talking about um, damage limitation mode is who, who's going to be the sort of um, the Kinnock character who's going to start shifting things in, in the right direction. I mean, here's an, I want to go into some of these likability findings. So again, just for the benefit of listeners, it's, it's a difficult one to communicate over audio, but again, people were asked of the people they'd heard of whether they liked them, whether they thought they were okay, whether they didn't like them. And, they, and we created, they created a, a YouGov created a net like score. So negative means bad, positive means good. I don't think that's particularly complicated. One, as an aside, quite striking finding was that Ed Miliband's net likability is minus 39 in comparison to Corbyn's, which is minus 40. So I mean, that, 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 that's quite surprising. I would have thought Ed Miliband might, well, been a bit more, bit more sort of liked than that, but clearly not. But anyway, um, I was looking at some of the numbers earlier. Again, there was a good sort of 20, 25 politicians named here and anyone you can, everyone you can imagine of uh, in the Labour Party. Um, the top three among the total overall public uh, were Dan Jarvis with minus one, uh, Sadiq Khan with minus three and Keir Starmer with minus six. Largely what you can take from that, I wouldn't really worry about the minus bit there. I think it's just that people don't really have a strong opinion on them. Um, so I guess that's not a bad starting point. Although what I would say is Sadiq Khan, 74% had heard of, versus uh, Keir Starmer, 19%, and Dan Jarvis, 11%. So a big, big difference there. And then if you look at the Labour Party voters, which are not necessarily the same as Labour Party members by any stretch, we should make that very clear, um, Sadiq Khan, plus 25, Lisa Nandy, plus 22, and you've got a host of people who are kind of in the teens or thereabouts, Keir Starmer, Clive Lewis, Dan Jarvis. Um, but what I thought was striking was that the least popular among Labour voters were Angela Eagle on minus 24 and Owen Smith on minus 19. Uh, I should also add John McDonnell on minus 11. But those two uh, very much associated with uh, trying to uh, dethrone Jeremy Corbyn, very unpopular even among Labour voters. Not even I mean, that's before we've even got to Labour members. So how do I interpret this? Well, I think at yeah, face value, the Lisa Nandy numbers are quite good. Um, but as I said, um, only 4% of people overall have heard of her and only uh, 8% of Labour voters. So the sample sizes there are, are not fantastic to try and extrapolate anything too meaningful. I'm just trying to look it up here, what her actual um, base is. But I think it's about 160-odd mm. or something like that. Um, I mean, the message I'm taking from this, guys, is that really, if you're just purely looking at electability... I know he's not in Parliament, but Sadiq Khan seems to be the big winner here. He's got name recognition, and he's got a reasonable benefit of the doubt among the public overall, and Labour voters seem to quite like him. I mean, Adam, what's your take? Um, yeah, I think this is one of those cases where there's... So polling about any kind of hypothetical uh, 
leader of a party is always extremely difficult and, and probably didn't really tell you very much, but in the absence of any other sort of decent tea leaves to read, it's probably the best that we can do. Um, so I think it's it's interesting that, uh, yeah, so much of it is is probably name recognition, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah, Sadiq Khan is up there, but then again, he's the, you know, the politician with the largest sort of directly elected mandate in the country, so therefore it's probably not that surprising that he's quite high up there. Um, it's interesting that um, Hillary Benn is so high up as well. Um, I wonder if there are people there either mistaking him for uh, you know, somebody else or possibly his father, um, because of those who have um, over 50% of the public knowing who they are, he's the only one apart from Sadiq Khan who hasn't either run for the party leadership or been party leader, so that's quite interesting. We did that speech for Syria, that was kind of plastered mm. all over the news. I mean, I, I think that was probably more than just a bubble mm, story. Possible, but, I mean, yeah. who knows, who knows? Um, so, again, I think also it's interesting that um, Lisa Nandy, who... Um, I'd reveal to listeners that Kieran's got money on to be next Labour leader, um, <laughs> but um, is only uh, only four percent of people know who this is. So, given that Lisa and Andy's probably quite a decent bet uh, to put money on as next well, Labour so. leader, well, <laughs> I've, I've, I've got twenty quid on Richard Bergen myself. But um, given that she's probably quite a realistic bet for um, next Labour leader, it's kind of striking that you know, fewer than five percent of the public know who this is. So. Given that um, also any, you know, the next Labour leader is going to be chosen by a mixture of MPs nominating and Labour members deciding, um, the disconnect between yeah, how how well a politician does among that selectorate and how they're going to play with the wider electorate, um, they are two really really different. So here's one that I think uh, here's one that I, I've noticed that again. So it's ten percent. Uh, of the sample of Leave voters. So there's, four, so there's 1,412 Leave voters in the sample. 10% of them, so about 140, have heard of this guy. But he is head and shoulders among the others as the most popular among Leave voters, and that's Dan Jarvis. And hmm. I don't know how much to read into that, to be honest, because I'm, I'm sort of sceptical how many people really do know who he is. But hmm. there's something about that that kind of fits, isn't there, at the same time? I mean, I mean, uh, let's um, let's move on a bit. Um, so one of the things we did this week was, which kind of feeds on from what we're talking about here, uh, is, is we asked uh, in the latest polling matters opinion survey, essentially what would make a good prime minister in your opinion, and we uh, we gave people a range of attributes that might uh, apply to a candidate. Some of these were car- uh, sort of personality traits, such as being a strong leader, understanding the concerns of ordinary people, not compromising on their values, that sort of thing. Um, but other things were just cold, hard sort of demographics, if you like, like being a man or a woman or being English uh, or Scottish or Welsh and that sort of thing. And we put this big, long list, I think it was about 20, 25 characteristics, and asked people, in their opinion, uh, considering what would make a sort of good prime minister, what were the top six most important to them? And I just did this because this week really is just trying to understand what it is that people in their minds are looking for. And uh, I guess to start off, I'll go with the top five, I think, because these were the thing, these were the uh, characteristics that more than sort of 40 percent um, of, of people sort of picked. So in fifth place has a vision for the country, 44 um, percent, I guess, joint fourth, really, with good in a crisis, 44 percent. Gets things done, 55% chose that. Strong leader, 56% chose that. And number one, in terms of what would make a good prime minister, understands the concerns of ordinary people. So I suppose maybe, maybe not um, a lot surprising there. I mean, just to read out some of the ones that were maybe uh, less chosen. So uh, number six, let me get this right. Yeah, number six, respected by other world leaders. Number seven, doesn't compromise on values. Eight, unites their party. 
Uh, nine, experienced politician. Ten, shares my values, which isn't that dissimilar to understanding the concerns of ordinary people, I suppose. Uh, and ten, uh, has worked outside politics. Some of the ones that didn't really come up um, overall were around the sort of, are they a man, are they a woman, are they... Uh, you know, what nationality they are and, and stuff like that. And one that I thought actually was quite low down was not from the establishment, 11%. So in this kind of Brexity populist world that we live in, um, you know, people aren't putting that in their top six. But what do we make of uh, some of these numbers, guys? I mean, I suppose it's uh, not a lot surprising there, Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, the it's interesting that understanding the concerns of ordinary people... Um, comes top that has become something of a, a cliche because what does it actually mean i mean who are okay we can talk about ordinary people as, as run-of-the-mill voters but the, the the concerns that voters have vary a great deal from person to person the same way the shares my values thing mm. i mean different people will have different values so um while it's kind of a, it's, it's sort of a, an obvious uh, thing to 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 to, to choose, but I mean, what does it actually mean? In, so it comes in top for UKIP voters and Labour mm. voters, but of course, what they imagine that to mean, as you as you rightly say, uh, will probably be different. Yeah, um, but it, I mean, it comes sort of sixties uh, or seventies for just about everyone, so it's. It's not the top one for Conservatives, not though. For conservatives. Uh, strong leader is the top one for Conservatives, or I should say, uh, understands the concerns of ordinary people. It's still very much up there. But it does, the strong leader that gets things done uh, beats that. Adam, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting how various stereotypes tend to come through in, in polls like this. So, like you just said, uh, you know, Conservatives, I think, are the only party uh, or the only group of voters there who don't put understands the concern of ordinary people at the top of their list. They put strong leader, followed by gets things done, and then understands concerns of ordinary people. It's it's one of those things where, again, when we do uh, polls and things showing what what are the strengths and weaknesses of each of the different leaders, um, and again, it was it, it was more pronounced, I think, back uh, before the last election. But one of the things where Labour leaders tend to do a bit better than Conservative leaders is on, oh, they, they're in touch with ordinary people, they understand ordinary people. Um, more so, especially when uh, with someone like David Cameron, who was quite aristocratic in, in, uh, or seen that way. Mm. What's... Um, a couple of the ones that jump out, actually, are um, shares my values, which is related to that. Um, only 18% of Conservative voters uh, said that's important. 33% of Labour voters and 34% of Lib Dem voters said that. So it's interesting how um, maybe Conservative voters just don't either don't see that as important or just don't necessarily tick that particular box because they see it's covered elsewhere. Um, but it's interesting that that's more important to Labour voters in particular. And you think about the relative strengths and perceived strengths and weaknesses of each of the party leaders. Um, you know, shares my values rather than is necessarily an election when it was um, supposed mm. to be, uh, you know, sort of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of pitch to, to Labour members there. I'm enjoying how Leave voters are much more likely than Remain voters to say gets gets things done. Uh, so 61% of Leave voters mm. versus 50% of Remain voters think gets things done is important. I can only imagine what Leave voters think those things are that should be got done. Um, I mean, I'm looking at some of these numbers in terms of where Labour voters might be different from uh, the total, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're top of the list e even then, but just, just to try and sort of tease out some of those differences. Working-class backgrounds... 14% of the total sample say that's uh, important, whereas 24% of Labour voters and 28% of UKIP voters uh, mm. think that that's important. So it doesn't put it in the top, you know, the top five for those audiences or anything like that. But still, uh, there is definitely a, a, sort of, a sort of pattern there. I mean, um, one of the things that we were talking about off air, though, Matt, is that 
this is a, a kind of wonky polling point, but I still think it's important when people read these numbers. Um, I mean, this is what people say is important, isn't it? But it might not necessarily be what they're thinking about, really. Absolutely. And, I mean, you can certainly infer from past election results what actually... Draw, I mean, OK, perhaps it's it's not always clear uh, whether it's uh, people's views on leadership drive how they vote or how... Um, people vote drives how they say they perceive the leaders but certainly there's an extremely strong relationship between how people view leaders and, and how they vote um, and on other things I mean looking at um, past uh, the performance of the economy and how people have voted after recessions or, or embarrassments like the, the ERM or the, the devaluation in the 60s um, you can certainly see, regardless of what people say, there are certain things that are uh, clearly drivers of, of, of how people vote. So you might get, for example, a lot of people um, some of the time saying, particularly when the economy is good, people saying that the, the NHS is the number one issue. But, um, I mean, it's not a... Things like that are not election-deciding issues. Obviously, um, how parties do on it matters... But it's not uh, it's not the, the the deciding issue. It is almost always the economy and leadership. Mm. And one of the things, as an aside, one of the things I think is interesting is that men and women basically no difference uh, across the piece. Really, there are some minor differences, but nothing uh, nothing structurally, nothing really in terms of um, ranking. And it seems to me, looking at this, that uh, you know. If Labour were going to be looking for someone to win an election, looking at what the, the, the voters at least say, and then they want someone that's in touch that's, and that's seen as you know strong, good in a crisis, get stuff done with, with a vision. And I think that you know, I guess the Labour leader that can, or the Labour leadership candidate that can communicate that uh, to the members of that party and somehow traverse that fine line between not looking like a sellout post-Corbyn in the minds of Labour members, but also putting some of that stuff at the top of their list uh, will be uh, will be really important. Um, yeah, so um, Adam, any final thoughts on that? Um, just about echoing Matt's point, how contextual a lot of this is. So, for example, strong leader, um, I think you could argue, especially in the wake of you know the attempt to remove him last year, that um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's position as, as Labour leader is... Yeah, as much as um, yeah, as unpopular as he may be among the general public, um, is at least as secure as um, yeah Theresa May's position as Conservative leader. Um, but Theresa May will get much strong, much better ratings for strong leader than Jeremy Corbyn will, because so many of these things are sort of you know feed into each other. So yeah, if a politician is more popular, then they're more likely to be seen as a strong leader, and then more popular, um, and so on. Yeah, I think that's right. There's certainly uh, certainly lots of uh, things for the Labour Party to think about. But I mean, again, these people like strong leaders, people like things that get things done, people like people that are in touch. And uh, at the moment, Theresa May at least seems to be that person among her base, which she's certainly identified as uh, Conservatives and Leave voters and so on. Um, I just want to close very briefly, though, by looking ahead to another election, which we have discussed on this podcast, that of Northern Ireland. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday evening, so by the time you listen to this, uh, listeners, you, it may have already happened, you might already know what's happening. But um, Lucid uh, have been pr- producing semi-regular polling, I think, uh, um, on, on this, and um, Matt, you've got some more information on what they've been saying and uh, what, what we might expect on, th- on Thursday. Yep, so uh, Northern Ireland going back to the polls 10 months after the last election due to the, the collapse of the the um, executive there. So the uh, the latest Lucid Talk poll, the final one, has a reasonably similar picture to 
the previous um, polling they've done. So the DUP narrowly ahead of Sinn Féin, but well within the margin of error. So obviously there's a possibility uh, that Sinn Féin um, comes highest in terms of votes, but obviously uh, it also matters how the preferences um, transfer and, and, and where the votes fall. So it's less likely that Sinn Féin would actually be the largest party and of course in practice it may be hugely symbolic but in practice it wouldn't make a whole lot of um, difference anyway so that's happening on Thursday counting on Friday what happens uh, the, the the fund then begins with the the largest uh, unionist party and the largest nationalist party which barring a monumental upset would be the DUP and Sinn Féin mm. uh, attempting to form a government. Now, based on what they've said about what their red lines are, it looks as though it's going to be extremely hard for them to do so. So there's a widespread expectation that uh, it will not happen within the specified time frame. So then it falls to uh, James Brokenshire, Northern Ireland Secretary, to decide what to do. Now, he could, in theory, uh, call another election, although it's not at all clear that that would produce a different result or there may be a period of direct rule at least while the the investigation into the uh, renewable heat incentive uh, affair which prompted this whole thing um, is concluded but um, certainly it looks as though it, it will be a fascinating election but uh, widely expected to end in a in an impasse and that's regardless just so i'm clear that's that's regardless of whether Sinn Féin pulled off a shock and got the most seats even if the result goes as we expected, you think the likelihood of a government being formed is very slim? In practice, it doesn't really matter which way around the, the top two are because the larger one will provide the first minister, the second largest will provide the deputy first minister. Yeah, I, I would say there, though, I think that that might not, in practice, that might not matter, but I've got a feeling it will matter a great deal. Oh, it, would be, it, would be, it would be hugely symbolic, no question about that, but I don't think it would have a... I mean, it, there isn't any reason I can see why it would make the chances of actually forming a government any mm. any better. But yes, in symbolic terms, of course, it would be it'd be huge. Mm. Certainly something to keep an eye out for. We may we may very well have something of a, of a crisis this time next week. Um, I mean, that's all we've got time for this week's uh, politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. Always great to wade into the numbers and try and make sense of what's going on. Certainly um, a lot covered Big, uh, big decisions, it seems, in store for the Labour Party as they debate their leadership. Jeremy Corbyn certainly will need to turn things around uh, for that rumour to go away. Um, and, and also some really interesting thoughts at the end there um, from Matt Singh on uh, Northern Ireland. I mean, Matt, you've got, a, you've got a piece out. I forgot to plug that during the episode. <laughs> you've you got a piece out on that, haven't you? Uh, Yes, on uh, number crunch politics, I've put out a, a, a primer and uh, a, a, the polling numbers and, and the sort of things we might expect on uh, Northern Ireland. That's sure. uh, up tonight. So, if you want more detail, listeners, on what Matt's just been talking about on Northern Ireland, then do check out that piece on number crunch politics. But as I say, big thanks to Adam Drummond from Opinion and Matt from Number Crunch Politics. Uh, I'm sure those, both of you will be on in the future again. Um, but that's all we've got time for this week. If you like what you hear, do uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other Android apps. Do like. Uh, the show give us a give us a positive rating hopefully and do share with your friends on social media or elsewhere the whole thing is about getting our name out there um, through social media and contacts and all the rest of it and we still get people today that say they've only come across the podcast recently and how much they like it so that's all fantastic so uh, anything you can do to help is great thanks for listening next week labor and ukip postmortems and maybe a bit on northern ireland too stay tuned <laughs>